GM. Let's go. Put it in the box. And make it 14 as he gets Anderson looking. Jacob DeGrom ties his career high with 14 strikeouts. Scooter and the big man busts the city in half, and the Mets lead it. A grand slam high off the right field foul pole. He's done it again. Francisco Lindor. That's driven to deep right field, headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Jeff McNeil breaks the ice with his 23rd home run of the year. Uh, amazing city. Podcast. And we are back with another episode of the Amazing City Podcast. I believe this is episode 14 on Friday the 13th. And Jack, what is, I mean, it feels like every day Mets land is Friday the 13th. And we found out the news on Jacob DeGrom's second MRI. He is recovering, but not quite where they want him to be. So they're shutting him down for another two weeks. And I don't know about you, but this is the first time I feel like I've truly been concerned and worried that we might not see Jacob DeGrom again, Jacob DeGrom again in the 2021 season. Well, I mean, I think you have to appreciate them being cautious and not, you know, risking what could be another couple of years of DeGrom to, for 2021 season as much as, you know, you want him back out there and as much as you want the best pitcher in baseball, you know, on the mound for you every five games, you know, you can't run the risk of him hurting himself even more. So as upsetting and downtrodden as it might be, I think it's the right call. And I think in the end, it's okay if he's out a little bit longer in 2021 than you originally hoped, if it means he's better, better off set for 2022, 2023 and beyond. Yeah, I mean, if this team's going to make a postseason run, it's not going to be without the ground. So if you can get him back and, and, get his arm healthy. So the earliest he's going to be back is mid-September. So if he could be back and be somewhat that from what we've seen when he was pitching this year, I think you're still in pretty decent shape. It just, it's a big blow to this team, especially since they did not go out and make a, a big move for a start at the deadline. There's no one really waiting in the wings in the farm system. Trevor Williams made a nice little start when he got called up. I mean, if I have to see Jared Eikhoff again, I, I might, I might just, I might just bleach my eyes. So like, it's just tough because now it's it just adds another giant question mark to an already kind of staggering team. He is under contract for another for one more year, and then he can opt out. So I think they are doing kind of what what Boston's doing with Chris Sale. They said that because he's under contract for a couple more years, they're playing it safe with Chris Sale. So he's finally making his debut tomorrow after like two years. So, I mean, if they're just trying to play it safe, okay, but it's just. It's definitely concerning and a little troubling seeing how how much the injuries are, have been piling on with him this year. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think anytime you have a pitcher on the north side of thirty having reoccurring injuries, you know, part of your mind always goes to: is this a downfall? Is this the beginning of the end? You know, because it's just it's natural. You know, in baseball years, he's old. You know, but he also didn't really did he didn't start putting on a major league workload until he was twenty six. So you kind of have both angles working there. But I think. You know, when Steve Cohen first took over the team, he said his goal was a championship in three to five years. You know, in theory, if they view this as a five-year window, it's only year one. I don't think you maximize everything for year one. But then again, you know, it's it's like you said, it's tough to see this team making you know going on a playoff run 
without DeGrom. Can they do it? I mean, absolutely. The NL East is still terrible. It's still as awful as it was when DeGrom was out in June and when he was out in July. But I think in the end, they can still make the playoffs without DeGrom. It's just, you know, instead of having the best pitcher in the world starting game one opposite of Corbin Burns or Brandon Woodruff or someone, now you have to go with like a Stroman or maybe at that point a Carrasco, you know, who are still both very fine pitchers. But it's, it's a major step down, you know? You, know. you no longer go from having the clear-cut favorited matchup in game one to now you're on a much more even playing field, if not, you know, kind of being the underdogs going into that game. So there's a lot of ways in which DeGrom's absence hurts the Mets, obviously, but it's going to be felt from today through whatever the final day they play a game this year is. But hopefully they're making the right call here in his – you know, holding him out longer this year helps him down the road, you know, because I think the Mets also have to think of next year, the year after. And, you know, with DeGrom still relatively young into his major league career, you know, all things considered, he's still on year, I think, eight, 2014, just full season number six. So, you know, I think they also have to look at it from the standpoint of, you know, if, if we maximize him out this year and we risk, let's say he blows out his shoulder, and is out all of next year, well, then that totally changes the outlook on 2022. Right. You know, they have to kind of, they have to look at it from several different angles. But I think if they are playing it super careful here, in the end, they're making the right choice. Yeah, it's tough to kind of, and we talked about this uh, in our last episode, this is year one of Steve Cohen. Everyone wants to win now. I get that. And we want to win World Series as, as early and quickly as possible. And I completely understand that. We This uh, is a, a fan base that is so starving for success and and for a world series title that we want we want win and we want to win now and i want to as well but when you take a step back and look at it from a team perspective i think you make a good point of if let's just say they do pitch him this this year when he's not quite 100 percent, he blows out his elbow he blows out his shoulder that three to five year timeline with with winning a, a ring is significantly delayed because right. having Jacob DeGrom on the mound every fifth day and just having that presence out there is insane. He hasn't pitched since before the all-star break. And he's still, I think, I think I was looking at this yesterday. He's still like third or fourth in all of baseball in war, which is absolutely insane. He was having one of the best seasons of all time. So having a guy out like that out there, you want that, but you need to really take a step back and think, okay, what's better for this team now in the future. And, Honestly, that might be having pushing Jacob DeGrom back there until he's 110% ready to go. I think you also have to approach it from the angle of if the Mets do make the playoffs this year, right? You know, everyone says you just have to get there, magic happens from there, and that's great and all. But when you think of it logistically, if they already get there this year, they're likely running into a 100 win team coming out of the West. And the Brewers are, I think, 23 or 24 games over 500 right now. So they'll probably win in the mid to high 90s. Right. Like, no matter what you do, you're running into at least two very good teams. So even with the Grom, the Mets were meddling six, seven, anywhere from like six to 11 games over 500. I don't even think they hit better than 10 games over 500. This yeah, 10, 10 was the high water mark. Right. So you're sitting anywhere from six to 10 games over 500 against what will probably be a team that's around 30 games over 500 just to start. That's not even counting the fact that if, let's say, the, Dodge, the Dodgers or the Padres or the Giants come out of the West and they're, one of them goes to the NLCS, obviously. Mm-hmm. If it's the best team out of the three, you're probably looking at a 100, 101 win team. 
Yeah. So now you're, so you're going from the Brewers who are going to finish probably 25 to 30 over 500, somewhere in that range, to an NL West champion who's probably, possibly around 40 games over 500. When we're at best, you're probably an 86, 87 win Mets team. Right. At, at, just looking at it logistically on paper, you're, you're risking a lot. And you're putting a lot of eggs in a very small basket if you run the Grom out there. Granted, having the Grom probably means you end up playing better than a mid-80s win team. But even then, pitching the Grom does not make you 10 games better. You know, no, as much yeah. as we all want to believe that, and he's a huge weapon in the playoffs, even then, you have that's assuming he doesn't run into another injury. You know, it just it makes more sense to, to play it completely carefully, especially considering Carrasco has looked pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he kind of got bad luck. He he didn't know not he kind of he did get kind of bad luck in his one inning start against the Nationals. You know, what are you going right. to do about field hit and field hit? Then Juan Soto going opposite field with the wind right. blowing, like sometimes you got to throw your hands up. Like that's baseball. Yeah, and but then the fourth fourth uh, the fourth run came the next day when. He wasn't even dressed, you know. It, it was after the, the continuation. What are you going to you know, do about that? But he's, for the most part, looks like Carlos Carrasco of old, who's been a legit number two starter on a team that went to the World Series, the team that was continuously going to the playoffs and winning their division every year. He can be, you know, kind of the, that top of the rotation guy if they need him to be. But, you know, it's it's another thing that looks that much better if you have DeGrom slot in there at the top. Yeah, you know, and we're still, we're still waiting to see what, what Syndergaard can provide when he comes back, there were talks that he's more than likely going to be coming out of the bullpen when he comes back. But now you have to wonder, are they going to try to extend him and put him back in the rotation with the uncertainty with DeGrom? But honestly, who knows? Maybe there's going to be a whole piggyback situation between those two. Yeah, I mean, we could kind of – maybe we hit a spot where you give Rich Hill a turn or two through the through the batting order, and then you go to Syndergaard. And that's, you know, kind of like – not almost the same, the same concept of the – you know, the Lucchese Reed Foley piggybacks from earlier in the year, you know, mm. you give him until he starts to hit a little trouble with the soft as a soft tossing lefty. And you go to a, a, you know, more of a hard throwing righty after obviously it's in the garden. Reed Foley are totally different pitchers. Yeah. In concept. Right. Yeah. I, I mean that this is all with the, with the assumption and I guess more so right now, hope that the team makes a postseason. but the way that they've played, the past couple of weeks with the exception of this national series has been just, I, I mean, I don't know how to put it besides putrid. It, it's disgusting it's like, the way that they've played. I mean, and I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep it a little clean. <laughs> I went on some very, I went on some rants before and it just, it, the way they played was just disgusting. The way they, the pitching was fine. I, I can't even really blame the pitching. The hitting was, was an atrocity. You're looking at in those 10 games against Cincinnati, uh, Miami, and and Philly, three teams that are, I mean, Miami's a good pitching team, but besides that, nothing great. You're looking at two and a half runs per game, which was last in baseball during that stretch. Six hits per game, a 188 team average. You hit into 10 double plays. You hit under 200 with runners in scoring position with the bases loaded. Do you know how many hits in that 10 games? How many hits I had with, with, with the bases loaded? Out of how many events? 14. I'll say two. One. They went one for 14 with, with the bases loaded. How many hits did they have with the bases loaded? Nobody out. I'm going to say zero. That would be correct. They went 0 for 4 with the bases loaded, nobody out. 
In that 10-game stretch, they hit the ball on the ground 49.6% of the time, which is second class in baseball. They had the sec- they had the lowest slugging percentage in all of baseball, and they hit into 10 double plays, which is, you guessed it, 29th in baseball. Just absolutely atrocious performance in those 10 games. I, I don't know what the hell happened. I don't know what was being said. To me, I think it, 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 the, the approach is awful. They couldn't hit a fastball to save their life. They couldn't hit a pitch down the middle to save their life. And then you have Rojas post game saying that didn't say anything to the team. That 10 game stretch was troubling. Yeah. And I think, you know, my one positive takeaway from that stretch was James McCann outright saying we're playing terribly. This is unacceptable. You know, it shows we heard a lot coming into the year that he was kind of a leader on the team and that he's a guy that some younger younger guys respected and looked up to. And I think it definitely showed that there. But, you know, even Rojas, when the day they fell out of first place, basically saying, yeah, I didn't really talk to them. Yeah. Kind of went normal. I mean, how many rants did Terry Collins go on just after random June losses? I think in, in Collins again, is so quick to keep it 100% with the team, the fans, and the media. Whereas it feels like Rojas at times kind of shies away from that and approaches it as everything's fine. We're going to be okay. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of that you can chalk up to him being a younger manager who's undergoing his first full season in the bigs. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously growing pains are going to be expected from a manager. You know, not every manager. There is no perfect manager. Sure. I'd even dare to say there's no great manager, you know, because their whole job is predicated on second guessing. But, you know, it was just, it's not what you want to hear as a fan. As a fan, you want to hear what a lot of like what Zach Scott said. This is unacceptable. It's terrible. We need to be better. We're going to find ways to get better. You know, if Alonzo wasn't so happy and smiley with it, you know, a lot of what he was saying is kind of what people want to hear. Just hang in there. We'll be fine. But he was missing the we, he was missing the part about not playing well. You know, James McCann hit that, hit that nail straight on the head. Yeah. We're not playing well. This is bad. We need to get better. But that was followed up with, but we'll be fine. We still have to trust the process. You know, that's what you want to hear from these guys. But we're not hearing it. And that was, I think, part of the issue. Is yeah. And everything we were hearing was either from Alonzo and all them saying, we'll be fine. Don't worry. Everything's okay. Life is good. Or just Rojas straight up not acknowledging it. Yeah, I, I think, and that's a great point about what you said with McCann. There, I love how he said there's a difference between urgency and panic. Uh, they they have not been playing with a sense of urgency in that 10 game stretch and then everyone everyone just like oh we're just in a rut this is a blip on the radar like guy this is a lot longer than a rut a rut is a three to four game stretch this has been going on for weeks if not months so you can't really say this is a rut but McCann like you said hitting the nail on the head It, it was about time that someone flat out said we suck right now and that was the first time we heard it you need that transparency to be able to have trust in the team yeah. No, because I think when you hear it and you hear the same thing over and over and over, even if you might think it's BS on surface level, you might start to wonder if they believe it. Like you kind of start to wonder, do they really think everything's okay? Yeah. Like, do they really think they're going to just kind of work out of it and they'll be fine? Like even Dom Smith earlier in the year saying, we don't need to look at the standings. We need to play our game. That's great. But if you play your game and you win 84 games, you're not going to the playoffs. You're not going anywhere. You're going to be watching Philly or Atlanta the divisional series and that's going to be a very like, this is the most winnable the nl east has been in years in a very long time probably since the year the mets won it in 2015 mm. and even then they needed a crazy august to really get to a point where it was unwinnable for anyone else mm-hmm. and, and then you know 
these, you know, the Marlins are going to make strides in the coming years. The Nationals got a lot of close to MLB ready prospects who could be up starting. Like Kybert Ruiz, I think is fairly close to being ready for the show. You know, and that's a big time catching prospect. He's going to turn a lot of heads. You know, the Marlins are just churning out pitchers left and right. If they can teach Jesus Lizardo how to throw a strike, that dude's going to be a problem for a long time. <laughs> Still shut us down for seven innings. Right. And like, if you, even if you look at the Braves, like they're a young team, they're going to get Soroka back at some point. You know, they'll probably never get Ozuna back, but you'll get Darno back at some point. You know, Acuna will be back at some point. They're not going to be a meddling 500 team for forever. Not to mention, you know, Christian Pache will end up all right. He'll be okay. You know, the Muller kid is showing legit promise. I mean, aside from shutting on the Mets, he's, he's still got an ERA below three on the year mm-hmm. against everyone else. You know, they're a young team. There's young teams all over the division. And the Mets are one of them, obviously, you know. But with that comes other teams also on the rise. So, so this is the most winnable that the Mets division has been. And at the minimum six years, and even before that, the Nationals were destroying everyone every year. And the years before that, the Phillies were destroying everyone every year. And, and the Mets that, had a two-year stretch. And then, and then for 15 years before that, it was nothing but Atlanta Braves. Right. So the NL East is never everyone sucks the worst, just the best of the worst team is going to go. This is probably the only year it'll be that way. Probably the only year it'll be that way for a while. You know, because you have to assume the Mets won't be as injured next year as they are this year. And, and that Cohen is willing to blow through the luxury tax like he said he is. You know, so you have to assume that it'll be the Mets division for a handful of years. But... That doesn't mean you just sit back and go, eh, we always have next year. Because guess what? Next year, you can have, like, next year, you might have, like, Lindor and Nimmo collide and both break bones in a ball in center field. Mm-hmm. And now you're talking about the 2023. Like, you have to be able to focus in and hone in on this year. And I think your point about McCann was excellent in his quote of urgency versus panic. You don't want panic. Panic is bad. Panic is usually unorganized and crazy. Urgency is focused. The Mets need to be focused and understand that if they can basically hold their own here against the against the Dodgers and the Giants, if they can basically win six or seven of these 13 games, they then go into a stretch where they have the same flip-flop, flip-flop type schedule, but with the Nationals and the Marlins. Yeah, yeah, they sure do. If they can just hold their own, you know, I know a lot of the season has been get through this stretch, get to this point, see where we are. But it's a sprint, and some it's it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. And sometimes in a marathon, you have to you have to be able to say to yourself, "I actually need to get to this point and go from there." You know, so the Mets they need to get through this point of their schedule, these thirteen games, and either try and you know you can't break even in a thirteen game stretch, but if you can basically break even, and then go into those fifteen games with Washington and Miami, let's say at minimum two games out, you're going to be okay. Yeah, I, I think for me, TV, you might have Lindor back. For me, I think t- we got today, and the fact that he's been taking live BP multiple days in a row. Right, Guillermo is taking grounders today. You might have Guillermo back at some point. That's a, that's your starting shortstop and a legit bat off the bench, and a legit defender who you who you know you can sub JD Davis out or platoon him a little bit more freely, and you get automatic defensive upgrades. Lindor was settling into an 800 plus OPS stride of over a month and a half. Yeah. So if you can get start getting guys like that back as your schedule softens, that helps. And you know, I was listening to MLB Network the other day. Don't know, don't know why I do that to myself. But um, oh god, what's his name? DeRosa. 
Mm-hmm. DeRosa mm-hmm. made a decent point. We were talking about how weak the Philly schedule is and to not let that blind you the rest of the way. You know, games, again, emotionless games, you can lose pretty easily. It's trap games. They're, no, they're trap games. It's, and it, you could fall into a schedule where you see, like the Mets, 15 games in a row against the Nationals and the Marlins consecutively. That can be a trap. That can absolutely be a trap because now you don't, like, you know, no Scherzer, you know, no basically anyone on the Nationals anymore. Right. And the Marlins, whoever they had that was decent, aside from basically Aguilar, they stripped away from the offense. You know, so there are emotionless games in the sense that, you know, there is no rivalry at that point. You know, you're not worried, oh, shoot, trade turn is going to kill us like he does every series. He's gone. He's gone. You know, so you kind of have these games against, you know, either veterans or teams that have shown that they do not care about this year. And, you know, as a team trying to win, it's not that it can be, you, those are games on paper you should win, but they're emotions. They're emotionless because there's nothing tied to them for the other team. So they're not, they're going to lay down and take it. But it's not like a, hey, Max Scherzer's telling everyone how much he hates the Mets, which he clearly does. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this club, clubostis dude just kind of chilling around the dugout. Like, so the Mets have to be able to not fall, they have to handle the stretch and then be able to not fall into that trap of emotionless games in series they need to win because they're going to need to win those series. Yeah, I think this I is hate, this I is the year. More than the series that I look hate. I hate looking further than the series you have in front of you. But regardless of what happens, they need to go at least ten and five in fifteen games against Miami and Washington at the minimum. Minimum, minimum. Like in theory, you're hoping you're catching fire. You you held your own against LA and San Francisco. You're feeling good. You're catching fire. You know, you can go out and string off 13 or 12 or 13 in a 15-game stretch. Obviously, you have to get there first. Right. But if you can hold your own against the Dodgers and the Giants, you, can, you could be in for some, some good baseball down the stretch. Yeah, I'm looking at this, and I talked to a couple people yesterday. Like, if for me, 6 and 7 is all I'm looking for in this 13 games. You go 6 and 7, I'm counting that as, as you know – Breaking even, if you will. This is the year where I think I've said more than ever, keep your head above water because it's always keep your head above water until uh, Lindor catches fire. Keep your head above water until DeGrom comes back the first time. Keep your head above water until Syndergaard comes back. Keep your head above water until everyone comes back. It's That's been the... The, the phrase of this year for me is keep your head above water. And I feel like this is really, that's all you really need to do to win this division. So if you can, once again, keep your head above water in, with these 13 games, then you have a two, two and a half week stretch to get fat, to get fat against those teams that are not trying to win. They're not. Miami's got some nice pieces. You have Lewis Brinson, who's finally learning how to swing a bat. Uh, Brian Anderson's back. They have more pictures there than know what to do with, with Alcantara, Lazardo now, Trevor Rogers, uh, uh, Lopez. They got so many arms down in Miami. It's going to be scary in a couple of years. But right now, when they're still young and inconsistent and they, they have no one around them, you need to capitalize. You need to absolutely pound them into the dirt. Exactly. We saw them do that in this Washington series, and I took the numbers compared from from that 10-game stretch to that series right after Pete Alonso said, just smile and don't think, but no, we got this. In that series, they hit 376 as a team. That was first in baseball. They had 12 hits per game. They only hit into one double play. 276 was running in scoring position. They had the lowest ground ball rate in baseball and the second highest team slugging percentage in baseball in that three-game stretch. So clearly something kind of clicked there. I don't know if if there was another team meeting that we don't know about 
or maybe they'll, you know, they just decided to wake the hell up. Like it, it was, it was finally nice to see a, the team actually swing the bat like a major league team in 2021, where they're hitting the ball more into the air. And look what happened. They scored more runs. They hit more home runs. They won. They actually won some frigging games. I don't care that happened against the Nationals pitching staff where they have like Gabe Klobositz, who I've never heard of until Tuesday. The fact is they're finally hitting the ball hard and capitalizing on the opportunities. So like you said, if they can win six or seven of these games against the Dodgers and Giants, first of all, whoever put the Dodgers and Giants back to back should be arrested and never see the light of day again. I, I don't know who decided that was a good idea. I know the Giants are, are the surprise of the year, but still, whoever decided to do that, four series in a row against the Dodgers and Giants, man, you deserve to go into prison and never see the light of day. You're an awful human. So if you can just win six or seven of these games, gain some ground, hopefully the, the, the Diamondbacks beat the Phillies and, and Josiah Gray and the Nationals kind of you know surprise the, the Braves, you have a chance to get right back into it. The Mets had an absolute free fall that we've never seen. Well, not, not that we've never seen, but we haven't seen in a while. They looked awful. They fell flat. They were looking terrible, but somehow they're still right in it. Right now, they're only, I think, either half a game or, or game out of first place. I think they're in a tie with that. They're, I think it might be one, one game out with Atlanta, two games out. Maybe right. They're in a tie with Atlanta for second. Right. So they're, they're, they're still – a full game out. Right. So they could still very much reach out and win this division easily. I don't I mean, care. They, this they, this they is still on paper the best team in the division. Right. And they, and they could, in theory, be in first place by the end of the night. You know? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, came out, like. I mean, listen, with the lineup that they put out against uh, with uh, against Urias, I, I don't know if that's going to happen uh, because well, even though even though Dom Smith mashes lefties, you can't play him against a lefty for some reason. So it's going to be tough, but if they can somehow pull one out today, like you said, they could be in a tie for first place. Yeah, I mean, they just have to do what they – I think they have to, again, like we've been saying, break through, just break even in these 13 games. And then when they get to the Nationals and Marlins, they take advantage of, you know, kind of what they've indicated that they're, you know, kind of what they sold off. You know, I think the big, you know, big reason they won the, the suspended game against the against the Nationals was they beat up on that Washington bullpen. Right. You know, they, they traded off, you know, uh, Daniel Hudson, one mm-hmm. of the better in baseball. You know, granted, they sold it off a little bit of everything. But even like Miami, you have to be able to shut down. You have to be able to shut down that offense. It's nothing special. Especially now without Starling Marte, mm-hmm. it's even more nothing special. So you yeah. have to be able to take advantage of the newfound weaknesses in some of these. Yeah, I liked how they they approach Juan Soto in this past lineup. It's just like if we'll give you a couple, we'll attack you attack you early, but if we don't get you on the first two three pitches, we're not giving you a single pitch to hit. Right, and I think they kind of learned that the hard way with the Carrasco at bat. The first game is Carrasco kind of. You know, he's an older veteran who has sustained success in the major league, at the major league level, but he went right at him. and wasn't even a bad pitch. He just – Juan Soto is I, so it reminded good. me a lot of – I think it was Marcelo Zuna in 2020 against Diaz, the second game of the year. He, you know, Edwin threw a nasty, like, 99-mile-per-hour two-seamer that cut off the plate. He just threw the bat at it, and it barely cleared the, the seats in right field. Sometimes you throw a great pitch – but the hitter makes an even better swing or takes an even better approach to it. It was actually a funny story about that. So I was watching that, that game at the, at my house and my girlfriend was staying with us at the time. 
because of COVID and everything. So she comes out, she goes, Oh, it's, it's one, nothing. It's, it's, yeah, it was like one, nothing. Oh, two outs in the ninth inning. Oh, so you're about to win two seconds later over the wall. So ever since then, I've made it a rule where she just can't talk about the game until the game's over. <laughs> I remember telling my dad, I, I was sitting and watching my dad. I, said, I, I looked at him, I'm like, you got to throw him that two-seamer again here. Because she's like, which one? Like the same one he threw him last night because he got him out on that same pitch the night before. Yeah. I was like, you got to throw it again. He's shown he can't hit it. Double up on it. If he beats you with it, at that point, you made a great pitch. Throw your hands up. Yeah. There's nothing more than your hands up you need a good pitch yeah sometimes just you make a great pick you make your pitch and they just make a better swing and that was one of those cases great hitters do that great yeah hitters. and it's, it's funny that you said now trey turner's gone but of course as soon as he leaves our division we see him for seven games because that's just that's the mets luck well, so we're gonna we have to figure out a way to bob, get him bob out bob nightingale tweeted about the all this all the aces the mets are gonna have to face coming up so we yeah be fine. so that's I'm not. I'm not affiliated anymore. I can. I can. We might actually up. have some luck on our side there. Yeah. Oh man. But, uh, yeah. So we a little bit of a tough stretch, and like you said, there might be some a little glimmer of hope because Lindor has been taking batting practice last couple of uh, last couple of days. Only batting righty though. He's still not batting from the left side. So hopefully, uh, there there is a chance that sometime. Before the end of this 13-game stretch, we see Lindor. Uh, we still don't know what's going on with Baez. He's been available off the bench, but he's not starting. He's not starting today. No word if he's going to be able to start tomorrow. Uh, they haven't ruled out an, an IL stint yet, which is obviously concerning. So I, I just I, I want to finally see, and I posted the clip of the, of the Diaz to Baez to Lindor double play. I want to see that happen, but... We still don't know when that's going to happen. There's just so much glooming excitement. So we'll see. Well, speaking of excitement, have you been, you've been seeing what's going on down in Syracuse with Khalil Lee? That man is out of his mind right now. You have been all over Khalil Lee these past couple of weeks. So I know you're, you're just been gushing to talk about him. Well, I'm, I'm still not totally sure. You know, his profile has not changed too much. He still kind of profiles as a high strikeout, low contact guy with, you know, solid defense. You know, he's never going to be you – know, I see some people telling me, oh, this guy, this kid's going to be a gold glove center fielder. Someone compared him to Jack Peterson the other day, which is, I think, just kind of lazy just that they're both lefties and that's really about it, you know. But Khalil's really kind of starting to put it together. You know, he was barely ready for AAA at the beginning of the year right. when they had to rush him up to the majors. You know, so of course he got exposed and he got knocked around, but you know, the arm is clearly there. He's got great speed. Oh, I gotta cut you off. I gotta cut you off. Avi Baez has officially been placed on the 10-day IL. I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna get upset about it because he basically has been on the IL for the past week. Yeah, so they put him on the IL uh retroactive to the 12th with back spasms, and Travis Blankenhorn has been recalled to another bat off the bench. Absolutely sucks that the Mets trade acquisition from the deadline has been, you know, underperforming, but it's kind of been, it's been the hobby bias experience where it's either home run or strikeout. And now he's, uh, he's been shut down for at least another few days, at least another, another week. Yeah. You know, but what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, quite a Friday the 13th for Mets fans. Yeah, don't worry. They didn't even say yet. <laughs> so, so back to my point about right. So back to Khalil Lee. Right, back to Khalil Lee. Um, he's really he's been 
turning it on lately. You know, the power has really started to develop. He's finally starting to kind of settle into his um, kind of like starting to settle into a groove at AAA. You know, it's a um, it's it, it's a small it's a small sample size because there are only a handful of games into the month of August, and he hasn't really had too much. Of it. Let's see. I'm checking right here. Mm-hmm. We're only looking at. 25 at bats in the month so far, but he's hitting 360 with a 484 on base and an 800 slugging so far for the month. He's got two homers, five doubles. You know he's stolen two bags. You know so he's been a big, been a big strikeout guy. He's also a high walk guy. He's starting to develop a little bit of power. You know it's kind of starting to come around a little bit more, which is exactly what you want to see. Right. Especially considering that one power is usually one of the last things to develop as a player kind of starts to round out his tool set and two there's really no one else <laughs> now you look at infielders you have vientos cortez Beatty, palmer alvarez if you want to throw catchers in there and not kind of leave them on an island by themselves you got five legit prospects in the infield then you got again you got allen you know you have some other lower level solid pitching prospects you know i don't count palms and pucky in there anymore but i i really like robert dominguez junior santos is an interesting guy so they definitely have some prospects at other spots, but they really have nothing in the outfield. You know, there's a solid case to be made right now that their second best outfield prospect is uh, Carlos Rincon. Yeah, who we just got. Who they got for Billy McKinney. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's been he's been playing out of his mind. He's been, he's been a mashing. He's been a force for Binghamton. You know, I've been talking to some guys on the minor league side, whether it's on my side of things or on the actual baseball off side of things, who think the Mets might actually have something in Rincon. Don't be surprised when he's put on the 40-man roster this winter because he needs to be put on to be protected from the Rule 5 draft. And I think he's a guy who, at this point, you know, likely he's starting to hit for a lot of power. I think he would get claimed or he would get drafted at least and brought into camp. But, you know, so they really, aside from Rincon and Lee, and neither of them really project as anything more than fourth outfielders. You know, Rincon still young. He's still in mm-hmm. double A. It's really hard to slap projections on those guys just yet because they're not, you know, fully developed prospects. But Lee is basically knocking on the doorstep of the bigs. I think he could be not a huge piece for the Mets next year, but he could be a solid contributor off the bench. You know, he takes terrible routes to baseballs. He doesn't have a great first step. So he'll never really be a center fielder. But, you know, there's a pretty, pretty good likelihood that the Mets are in a world next year where on paper their fourth and fifth outfielders going into the year are, you know, Khalil Lee and one of Almora or Pilar, you know, because I'm because Pilar has that weird contract where he's mm-hmm. a team option. And if it's declined, it becomes a player option. So it's a little strange. And Almora just naturally has one more year of control. And I don't think he has any options. So you're going to have two, in theory, if they do, let's say they take Almora and Lee as their two backup outfielders, which would be a little underwhelming. But right. for conversations, right. say you have two pretty strong defenders and pretty fast dudes in the outfield. And we've all seen Khalil Lee's closing speed. You know, that dude in, that dude in open space runs like a wide receiver who just broke off in the corner. You oh, know, yeah. He has breakaway speed. And in baseball, it's more of closing speed. But that dude's got absurd speed. You've seen how strong his arm is. He is how strong his arm is. He's a cannon. You know, he's starting to hit for a little bit more power. So I think in a world in which he starts, maybe he can max out shy of 25 home runs in a full season. 
But I think coming off the bench and a guy who probably hits 10 or 11, steals some bases, plays solid defense, but strikes out a lot. You know, but I think any sort of major league contribution in the coming years from any of their double-A, triple-A outfield guys is more than you can really ask for. You know, because, like, they have Cesar Puello in the outfield in Syracuse right now who, you know, like, they have guys, Mason Williams, you know, they have guys down there who aren't prophets. For the most part, it's either younger organizational fillers who become quad-A type guys or you just have veterans on minor league deals. So they need, they need some of these guys to develop. And I think at the bare, you know, Khalil Lee developing into a fourth or fifth outfielder is huge for them. You know, it's, it's less money you have to spend on the open market. And it's one more player you don't have to worry about pulling out and getting. Yeah, and that lack of production on the minor league side makes me wonder if they decide to move a positionless guy like Viento, should I put him in left field, or maybe even a Brett Beatty, depending on, tried, on how things both. go. They've tried them both in left field. Uh, Beatty, I think, is a lot less likely because a big reason his stock is rising. You know, he's gone as high as 16th, I believe it was, in baseball. Or no, he was 19th in Baseball America's top 50 prospects in all of baseball is because he's finally starting to come around defensively at third base. Mm-hmm. He played a little bit of left field earlier in this year, but that was a li- right before the promotion double-A, so it seemed more like they were starting to try and find ways to have Beatty and Vientos offensively in the same lineup. Right. You know, but a big reason Beatty is shooting up prospect rankings, you know, we always knew he was going to hit. Right. You know, the, the bat was never going to be a question. It was just whether or not he could find a position. You know, coming out of the draft, a lot of people kind of labeled him as positionless. But, you know, I've heard that he could, that some are starting to think he could be an above average defensive third baseman at the major league level, which is huge, you know, because there's not a lot of those guys. As we see right now, you know, you can have a great bat all you want, but if third base is your spot and you can't really fill it or you don't have great hands or great range, it's, it's a shit show. There's no <laughs> other way to put it. There's yeah. no other way to put it. That's kind of what J.D. Davis is right now. He's effectively – He's positionless, but he's stuck at third because that's all he can really do. Yeah, and we're even seeing that not just with the Mets. You look at Philly, Alec Bohm was playing games at first base because he is, listen, we know how I feel about J.D. Davis and not just his fielding. He, Alec Bohm makes J.D. Davis look like Nolan Arenado. That guy stinks with the glove. <laughs> he yeah. is, so he is very sense. not good. You know, that, that's what makes Brett Beatty all the more valuable is that he's starting to show that he can be a legit defensive third baseman in baseball, yeah. in Major League Baseball. So you kind of, you know, I think we I think we see a year next year where the Mets, you know, I don't know what they plan on doing with the DH spot. You know, we could see a world in which they dub Jeff McNeil as their right fielder mm-hmm. you know, because it might, it might actually be easier on the legs for him not to have to get as hard of a first step. You know, maybe you put him out in free range in right field. You stick Robbie Cano at second base, and you kind of go into the year with an open competition at the eighth. And maybe you let Mark Vientos. And maybe you give, maybe you let Vientos take a legit crack at. I forgot maybe about Cano. <laughs> oh, I have no doubt in my, I have no doubt in my mind he's coming back next year. They're not just going to eat his money. I his want him gone. Back. I want him I gone. Do, but you have to look at the practice. Yeah. If you extend Baez, you put Baez at second. Keep Lindor at short. Obviously, you put McNeil at third. And then figure out the outfield from there. Yeah, I think you, I think you got to lock up Nimmo's. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I think know, this offseason you got to lock up Alonzo, McNeil, and Nemo. You got to lock those three up. I would not at least two of the three. Right, I would not be opposed to a world in which the Mets kind of go into 2022 with kind of an open competition for DH. Mm-hmm. So maybe you let JD Davis go in as the guy, but don't be so hell hell bent on it. Let Vientos take a crack. Let Carlos Cortez 
try and maybe make a mark, you know, maybe even maybe even look at Travis Blankenhorn, who just has been demolishing triple A pitching and has shown legit pop at the MLB level. Yeah. You know, even in his at bat against Philly, the game that they walked, I think Dom walked it off in the doubleheader. You know, he hit a laser right at Reese Hoskins that handcuffed him. Yeah. And the kid hits the ball hard and he's only 24. You know, so I, I wouldn't be opposed if they go into 2022 kind of with an open competition for DH. So I think that is something that could definitely benefit Vientos. When I talked to Mark Tremuto about it, their um, minor league, their amateur scouting belt or amateur scout, scouting department head, um, he thought that the key to success for Mark Vientos is limiting the strikeouts and keeping the walks up. If he can command the zone, he thinks he has the chance to be a 30 homer guy in the bigs. You know, I can see that was Vientos from from the and one of the things that we've talked about. I'm not the biggest prospect. I'm trying to you know get more knowledgeable about it, but prospects are clearly more more your side of things. The one thing that I have seen with him in terms of just like looking at the numbers from his past couple of years, when he makes contact, and the same thing with Khalil Lee, when he makes contact, the ball is going to go. It may not go out, but he's going to hit the ball and hit the ball hard. So. I think that that's something to look at when it comes to Lee and Vientos is what are their whiff numbers like? How much are they swinging and missing? How much are they making contact when the ball's in the zone? And I think we're seeing that with with their success this year, not, and not just those two, but when it comes to Mauricio, Alvarez, and Beatty, all those guys, when their, their bat-to-ball skills are improving significantly, and it's proving to be uh, with come to, with more, more, more hits and a lot more power. Mark Vientos leads all of Mets minor leaguers in home runs. And Mauricio's, I think Mauricio's got like 14 or 15. Alvarez has 13. Khalil Lee's been hitting homers now too. It's, the power is promising. Right. No, absolutely. And I think you, at the bare minimum, that's where you have to start. You know, you have to start with finding the promising aspects. You know, because if you just focus in on looking at the whole game as a whole, oh, well, he's still lacking here, he's still lacking here, you're going to miss certain parts here and there. You know, like Ronnie Mauricio has not developed an eye at the plate yet. Right. But he's got 15 home runs this year. And coming into the season, he had seven total yeah. in his minor league career. You know, so the power is clearly developing. You know, and that's, that's all you can really hope for out of him. I think he's still only 20, maybe 21. Born I believe August he's 20. 20. Yeah. Uh, April 4th, 2001. So okay. 20. God, 2001 so was 20. He's a young ago. 20. Yeah. You know, so you have a lot of promising guys like that. And, you know, they kind of, when they start to develop, when they start to develop the power, you see how far they hit a ball. That, that catches eyes the same way nasty curveballs do. Mm-hmm. You know, or when someone starts, starts popping 100 in the mid. You know, the power catches your eye. You know, and I think Vientos is such a free and easy swing that comes with a lot of pop that it's something, it's really fun to watch. Yeah, and absolutely. I, so at some point next year, we'll be seeing, Probably next year we'll be seeing Vientos up in Queens. To be completely honest, I think we're one more legit injury to a starter away from seeing it this year. But we're not we're not talking about that, Jack. We're not no, we're not hoping we're not talking injuries. No, I don't I can't believe take in another manifest. injury. I, I don't believe in manifesting or putting things into the universe or whatever. But I think if we're in a world where JD Davis, you know, goes down and really hurts his hand and Dior and Lindor aren't back yet, I think at that point you have to seriously consider it. Because yeah. the upside to, a, to like a Vientos, you know, giving him a Conforto-style promotion is a lot higher than sticking with Alfredo Tovar out there every day. You know? I was just going to say that. It sucked, and I hated everything about it, and I never want to do it again. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of think, well, is two, month of, two months 
of his arbitration clock really going to be the end of the world. Right. So trying to figure it out from there. I think there was that was kind of one of the things that they did with McNeil is they didn't want to call him up because one, they felt like he didn't really have a position. And two, they didn't really want to start his clock. It turned out pretty damn good for him and the team because now he's up and he's one of the best hitters on, and not not just on the club, but he's one of the best pure hitters in baseball. He's got a career like 308, 309 average. Yeah. He's hitting 270 and it's considered a down year for him. Like right. it's hitting 270, and I people are trying to convince me he should be playing for his job. Oh my god, I can't I can't with people sometimes. I really can't. I don't go on Twitter much anymore. <laughs> You're a lot wiser than I am. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know about you, but that's all I had. I don't know if you had any closing thoughts. Actually, no, I do. What did you think of the Field of Dreams game yesterday? Because you said that they should not be doing it. Um, My candid take was at first I thought it was a shit idea. Um, I was not too sure how well it was going to work. It feels kind of gimmicky, you know, but I think a lot of it was Fox sold it really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at one point they, you know, they show a foul ball on the right field side and they do the guy down there holding the field mic is an overall. Yeah. So I, think, I think the production value of it was amazing. At first, I was a little worried it was going to be, you know, normal Joe Buck, John Smoltz calling the game, producing the sidelines, whatever. But, you know, you have the opening scene of Costner coming out through the, through the corn with the teams. Oh. You, know, you, have, you have the Tim Anderson walk off into the night, Liam Hendricks basically begging to get a signed ball from Kevin Costner. Like, I think that the production value of it is really what made the game awesome. And aside from the fact that it was an amazing game. Yeah, that was a great game. You, know, you have a huge go-ahead home run by Stanton. I think it was – I think Stanton – Stanton Pyatt and Judge get to go ahead. No, so Judge brought it Judge, to within Judge one. Went, Judge went yard. And then, and then Stanton, Stanton hit, hit the, the, two, the go-ahead. Right. So then you have the Tim Anderson walk-off, and it was just, like, a lot of great theatrics to it, which I think is what you kind of need from a game on that type of field. Yeah, you, know, you need kind of like the movie feel to a game, you know, the scripted feel. You yeah, know, it, like, it was you so cool seeing the players coming out of the corn. Oh my god, I think Sin was walking out with with corn in his pocket. It was just, it was such a cool scene, and the, the oh, view of Costner with the players behind him. Awesome. Right, and then after after Anderson's walk off, you cut up to a bird's eye view of the fireworks going off in center field, dude. And I'm sitting there asking myself, I'm like, oh my god, they about to light a shit ton of corn on fire, <laughs> like. I, I think the best part of that was just how much how much it fit. You know, if it was like a normal one nothing game, they come in, they get the clothes, whatever. Like, I'm like, okay, it is what it is. Yeah. But you had yeah. an amazing game on top of that, which I think really kind of sold it. You, know, you can't bank on that every year. You can't bank that every year you're gonna have a crazy game, and you're gonna have you, know, you can always run. You can do the gimmick every year of dressing everyone up and mm-hmm. annual scoreboard, and you know, it's the dude manually turning the clock hands every minute. You can do that. But some years, you know, you might run into like a 14 to four game where someone just gets absolutely blown out of the water. And I think at that point you question, you know, okay, well, what do we do when it's not a great game? Yeah. You know, I think they should play a game in the sandlot. Put the dot in the sandlot. You know, like go do a game with like a Bull Durham theme. You know, like I think you could actually do pretty cool things, you know, like go find the high school, high school field where Jim Morris was pumping heaters. Hell yeah. Put, put, I think I think it was the Rays and the Rangers in that game. Rays and the Rangers, yep. Yeah, go go put the Rays and the Rangers out there. Like, mm-hmm. I think you do a lot of cool stuff like that. So I saw on Twitter, someone made the point. They took a regular season game and made it a national appeal the same way the NHL does with the um, – I'm blanking on the name of the game. Yeah, with the, with the outdoor game, yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. The stadium. The one they sometimes they sometimes. I'm not a big hockey hockey mm. guy, but the one they do at City Field every now and then. Yeah, it, it was so cool, and yeah, it was gimmicky. But I feel like with with everything that's gone on in the past couple of years, I think I think people, even just for fans, this is something that that we needed with all the crap that's gone on uh, since you know with COVID nineteen, the pandemic, and just shutting everything down. This is the first time where it, it's it, it's felt like yeah, it's a gimmick, but it felt appropriate just for for fans and and players to just kind of have like a a release in a way. And you know, plus we don't want to show bias, but you know, it was it was cool to see the Yankees lose on a stage like that in walk off fashion. It was nice to see that. So, well, I, I, I that was a nice little additional touch for me personally. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect place to wrap it up. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's all I got. I don't know if you had any any final thoughts. Let's go, Mets as always. Yes, yeah, that's that's. That's the best way to end it right there. All right, guys. Well, thank you for uh, listening to another episode of the Amazing City Podcast for, with Antonio Slater and Jack Ramsey. Jack said it perfectly. Let's go Mets.